This is a podcast about time. The time it takes to become an artisan. Heritage. Saving to buy something you'll keep forever. Sustainability. Memories attached to clothing that you've loved and lived in. And the longevity of friendship. To us, the true definition of luxury. I'm Lynn Coleman. Join me and my friend and colleague, Jill Brown, as we chat about the components about what makes Scottish cashmere so special, why it's loved by people all around the globe, and why every design house has a Scottish mill in their little black book. The story of Barry is a modern-day fairy tale. Set up in Hoyk by Walter Barry and Robert Kersel in 1903, this little mill would become the talk of the fashion world around 100 years later, when a French fashion house came to its rescue. Specialists in cashmere, Barry and Kersel set about creating underwear for the sportier client. Their name became synonymous with top quality cashmere, producing products for Hermès, Dior and Yves Saint Laurent. In the early 1990s, Chanel developed a two-tone cashmere cardigan that Barry produced for them. It was a hit, solidifying a business relationship that would safeguard a textile treasure. In October 2012, Chanel acquired the mill after Barry's then-owner, former textiles giant Dawson's, went into administration, leaving the future of the Hoyk factory uncertain. The marriage between the mill and the Couture House was celebrated one wintry night in December 2012 at the annual Metier d'Art Ball in the Lithgow Palace. It was a palpable performance, with the clothing quite rightly taking centre stage. I remember getting out of the chauffeur-driven car that had whisked us from the city centre of Edinburgh to Linlithgow and having my breath taken away by the attention to detail. Fire pits and lanterns led the way to the birthplace of Mary Queen of Scots where Carol Lagerfeld claimed his catwalk for the evening. The smell of rich burning wood was so evocatively Jacobean. In the moment, I felt an internal seismic shift. There was a tremendous amount of pride for a textile industry that had survived and thrived during prosperity and austerity. And I watched incredible tartans, tweeds and cashmeres floating towards me. Two centuries of artisan craftsmanship were being celebrated in all its glory, with Chanel shining a spotlight on an industry that had forgotten just how magical it truly is. Since that night, Barry hasn't looked back, but nor does it have stars in its eyes, despite supplying the most prestigious fashion houses around the world, including Chanel. Everything revolves around reaffirming a commitment to traditional expertise and craftsmanship. Interestingly, the legendary mill still manages to find time to create its own capsule collections in-house. The reins were passed to Augustin Dolmayu from Odile Massinger, who produced the ready-to-wear collections that are sculpted out of the most noble materials while venturing outside of Kashmir's usual comfort zone, adopting a modern allure at once radical and compelling. Barry is a symbol of excellence in the industry that is ridiculously high achieving. The standards they adhere to are echoed across Scotland, making the country the king of textile production. So how do they do it so well? What is it that, what have they done that's, that's so incredible, do you think? Well, I think a lot of this comes down to having couture houses calling you up and those couture houses then asking for certain things. Now, the, the two piece that I, that, that you know, that is a classic twin set, 
um, which is obviously an under sweater and then the cardigan over the top. And, you know, we, we've seen them for like over a century now. They became really, really popular at the start of the 1900s. Then they soared in popularity with that kind of um, retro Americana vibe that we saw in old Hollywood for, in the 40s and 50s. But Chanel did something really, really clever in the 90s. And uh, like I said in the in the chapter, this really solidified Barry's design shops being held by hand by Carl. So what they did was they dip dyed the bottom of the yarn, at, you know, long before that ombre explosion really happened when you got to the noughties. So they did that and they could not make enough of them. And obviously Chanel were not making them, you know, to, to stack them high to sell out. You know, they, they made a certain run and then once that sold out, it was gone. But it was so popular that every year they did a variation on it. And I think that's exactly what the mills have in their back pocket. They have proper couture houses with creative directors in every single field that, you know, from Dior to Hermes back to Chanel, the creative directors of those then have teams of people that they take from art schools all the way up, you know, at different capacities and different learning levels. And that's all then plunged straight back into the mills. Can we do it like this? Can we dye it like this? Can we cut it like that? Could we put appliques on like this? And so the mills get this chance to really, really play around. And I think, honestly, that's what Chanel thought was so special because they have artisans in-house you know, working across feathers and sequins and buttons and, you know, the, the list is hugely long, but they kept using Chanel, uh, they kept using Barry as the people that made the knitwear because they were expertise in that. I suppose it's that sort of thing that you, you, we talk about all the time is surround yourself with people who challenge you, isn't it? You know, it's very easy to be friends with, be colleagues with, people who agree with you or people who are happy to stay in their comfort level, but if you you know, work with people who are like, yeah, but can we do it that way? Mm. And you go, yeah, no. And then they go, yeah, but can we try? That's where the magic comes from. Absolutely. And I think that, that you know, a, a client will lead a factory anyway. That's that's how it works across the world. Where the luxury lies is where Chanel understood that they were dealing with someone who really knew their stuff when it came to cashmere. And that relationship goes back to... Coco Chanel's days, you know, she had a massive love affair with Scotland. It's a very well documented love affair. Um, she was in a relationship with the Duke of Westminster and they had a palatial pile up in the north of Scotland, um, up in Sutherland, which it, this always makes me really laugh that, you know, I could get on a flight here in Edinburgh and be at the bottom of Spain in four hours and it would take me the best part six hours to drive up to the top of Sutherland. You know, it's it's geographically really difficult to cross Scotland because of the mountains and the, the A and B roads. Um, but they entertained up there a hundred years ago. You know, people would come from London and Paris and Milan to go and you know have a jolly up in this gorgeous house. Um, which, by the way, I don't know whether or not you know this, has been bought over to be, uh, I think it's been turned into a boutique hotel. I hope it is, because it basically sat rotting for 100 years. And yeah, as you say, 100 years ago, that would have been, especially if you came from France, a boat 
and then a a very uncomfortable journey how cold and dark it would have been yes Scotland in the summer is is still Baltic but if you came in the winter as well you know (laughs) Sutherland it's probably in December lucky if it's light for two and a half hours yeah it's it's a bit of a culture shock the thing that is really interesting about the link between couture houses and our mills and our our textile industry here in Scotland is that it's a relationship that can be tracked back you know hundreds of years and Chanel actually as in Coco Chanel paved the way for that you know she held Karl Lagerfeld's hand in telling him about how wonderful our textile world was you know she she was here and she you know going on holiday and you know whenever she had any spare time she would be here she frequented the mills she completely submerged herself in how we made material and rose hall house up in the the north of scotland is testament to that and it, it just destroys my soul that it's been left to rot and erode around itself when she she hand-painted wallpaper for goodness sake Coco Chanel's hand-painted wallpaper rots from the walls there it's just the the mind boggles but that that I suppose is a direct correlation between how far away it is I mean it's hard to get up but it's still Coco Chanel hand-painted wallpaper right it's just how how um you know, beauty is the eye of the beholder. If you don't know what that is, then how do you know to look after it? And, you know, that that journey of how that fell out of whoever's hands or fell into disrepair, I always think is so interesting. Like, how does that... Because it wouldn't happen no. now, you know. Well, I don't know, because obviously the, the estate would have been sold um, or, or was unable to be sold, and it just, you know, crumbled around itself. But the other thing is, is that what do you do with luxury that's attached to a wall yeah do you know like phoebe antraquare who's this amazing muralist from edinburgh who there's an amazing place you can go if you ever come to edinburgh and look at it which is called the phoebe antraquare center which is just at the bottom of broughton street but you're in this really difficult position there's some beautiful murals inside the old sick children's hospital and they can't be moved and that building's being sold. sold and so so what do you do what do you you know i want to preserve it I would hate to think if I was able to afford, which I cannot, buy whatever's going to go in that development, that underneath that was like a precious piece of work. But, you know, we've been talking about up until till now, luxury that's movable. But what, yeah, when, it, when it's one of the greatest fashion designers who ever lived, hand-drawn wallpaper. Someone should go up and just take a scrap of that, FYI. I think they probably have over the years. But, you know, you, you've hit the nail on the head and, you know, this this series is all about what luxury actually means and we we sit here in Scotland with some incredible names you know you you just told that story but there's obviously Charles Rennie McIntosh and Margaret MacDonald and you know they had frescoes all around Glasgow and these incredible um, fireplaces and cornicing and woodwork built into houses that you know in the 50s and 60s were ripped out of the walls tiles that were battered away that now we're like, oh my goodness, how did we let this happen? And I suppose that luxury, again, is is about time. I keep coming back to time. That if you have the luxury of being able to sit on something for long enough, 
it goes from um, there's, there's, there's it's called the lever's time scale of fashion. You know, that's something that was produced um, in whatever date it is. Five years later, it's unsightly. Ten years later, you don't want to look at it. Twenty years later, it becomes intriguing again. Um, Thirty years later, it's vintage. A hundred years later, it's an antique. And you know, the older it gets, the more desirable it gets. That's a really real thing that we put £25 million into landfill and we're not taking care of the items of clothing that we buy now. How are we going to preserve that for 100 years' time? And what will be left? You know, it'll be the remnants that doesn't biodegrade because it's, you know, it's plastic or whatever. But the other really interesting thing about Charles Rennie Macintosh is, and there's a really good lesson in that around their luxury and their design is, that wasn't patented until they were dead. So they I got, did not know that. they did not make any money out of that. And that's why you can see so many cheap reproductions of what they've done. Oh. So they didn't protect their brand. They didn't protect their luxury. And I think that that's something really important when you look at how luxury. Scotland has had to fight to protect mm-hmm. its luxury. I'm thinking particularly about Harris Tweed. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's a reason that, you know, these things are branded, yes. that you legally protect those things because they're your intellectual property, they're your money maker, but they're also, you know, they're yours. Well, the thing about that movement, particularly around Margaret and Charles Rennie McIntosh, is that they were part of Glasgow School of Art and they were part of a much bigger movement. And so I can understand that if you, if you transport yourself back to literally 100 years ago, they would have felt part of that movement. They wouldn't have felt like they had ownership of that movement. And so I suppose when you think retrospectively, it's very clear that they became the poster child for that movement. But the Glasgow girls, the the collective of women, you know, and God, you're thinking about women's rights and, and women going to work. And these women were at the forefront of creating some of the most exciting interiors and architecture in the world like people were coming from around the world to get a hold of these designs to print on tiles and put in put in wood paneling and we see it all over glasgow coco chanel hand painting that wallpaper 100 years ago up in sutherland she wouldn't have been thinking about that needing to be preserved because she is coco chanel and she's not thinking about herself as a museum to be preserved she was living and breathing in that drawing room that she painted, you know, a kind of beige colour and then hand-striped, all very um, Parisian and gorgeous, which for a, a Scottish estate, they didn't look like that, you know? They still don't look they like don't that. Look you know, it would have been all pattern. Yeah. Because it would have been full of tweed, tartan and cashmere. It would have been all pattern. Absolutely. And then I could, I just, I wish I had, could have been a fly on the wall when they had the first, like, local layered shrine. <laughs> Totally. But this that, looks much bigger. Why is that? Oh, there's not 1,500 patterns everywhere. All attacking your eyes. Although I love that too. I, have I to do say. too, yeah. I do love that. And it kind of creates a warm coziness, doesn't it? That assault on your senses of, of 4,000 pieces of colour woven into one piece of fabric. But that old alliance, that's something that um, as a Scottish person, I've always been really intrigued by. Our relationship with France and our relationship with Paris in particular. I know we are currently sitting in my front room and I am a lucky, lucky, spoiled lady um, and a poor artist. This would never have happened if I hadn't married, right? You can laugh. (laughs) Um, 
I am three doors down from where Marie Antoinette's um, daughter fled the French Revolution. So this is where they came, uh, Regent Terrace is where, is where they came to live, um, so that she wasn't basically beheaded. Um, and her cousin was uh, living in Holyrood Palace at the time. He was a king. And she spent her exile here because Edinburgh and Paris had this lovely twinning relationship that we, we've always, you know, you go right back to Bonnie Prince Charlie and, you know, that relationship is, is centuries old, but it's still very much at play today. It's still a, a marriage between two creative souls rather than a work and commerce thing, even though it absolutely is that too. Mm. And you were the first person to ever take me to Paris. I was. I was. That was amazing. That was our first first class experience as well, wasn't and it? We, and we were tw- 22? So yes, I was 23 just. Okay, so you, I was you... a little bit older. But that that experience, I, so I'd never, I'd never been to Paris. I'd always been, I'd, I'd gone to Spain. And it was my first time in London too. But us going around Paris and me for the first time, because I came to fashion journalism a little bit later after that. We'd, we'd been working in radio. And us wandering around the streets of Paris, it was really clear to me that that synergy between how Scotland looks and how Paris looks and how architecturally we're, you know, we're not the same, but we have similar elements. You know, inside those gorgeous Parisian apartments, there's panelling and there's, you know, cornicing, but it's very, it's very, very French. But we have this here in our Georgian townhouses. And they're, they're really, really similar. Do you not think so? I think you've got the grand boulevards as well, haven't yeah. you, that are very similar to and reminiscent of the new town here. Yes. You know, if you've not been to Edinburgh, you should come. Um, and, you know, you stand at the castle and to one side of you is the old town, which is very narrow and rickety and everything was built on top of each other. And then to the other side is this so dark. Is, is the absolute gorgeousness that is the new town, which is all beautiful, grand, wide streets with wide pavements and beautiful sandstone buildings, and it's gorgeous. It's the difference between light and dark. I mm. mean, that, that's how I always view... It's Jekyll and Hyde, isn't it's, it? Absolutely. It's why, it's why literature has flooded out of this city, because the architecture is soaked into every story. There is no way that you can weave yourself through the closes and then get up into the really the, the wideness of the streets in the new town, where and that's luxury to me. You know, having that amount of space on a road when you go a couple of miles up the road and the space of the road is like like a box that you know. So and the other and thing, which I'm sure one day we will put a photograph up so you can all see is the window size and if you know anything about history you will know about the window tax and that is very a big mark between Edinburgh's old town and Edinburgh's new town. Lynn has three pretty much full size windows in her front room and then you go to the old town there where you know flats will cost you an awful lot of money but the windows I mean they're not quite like your arrow slits but they're not big. No and actually it probably stank as well so you wouldn't want a big window. Chamber pots were being flung out of those onto those teeny narrow streets, and that just didn't happen in Georgia and Edinburgh. So the, the difference that the difference between luxury and poverty 
in the in the Jekyll and Hyde nature of the city. You're absolutely right, and the, the Frankenstein nature of the city. Like I, I'm a big um, a fan of um, Mary Shelley because she laterally went on to talk about why, when she was writing it and she was here, how much it influenced her, and you you see that in Frankenstein as a character that there's this there's there's you know there's so many different components and that's exactly what Edinburgh has it's it's this really really tiny city in comparison to how how big other cities can be we have a mountain we have the seaside and we have industrial leaf which you know got enveloped into our, our city boundary but then you have this medieval side which is dark and creepy and then the Georgian new town and yeah, it's just, it's so beautiful. But so back to Paris. You've got these big grand boulevards and then you sort of head up through the city and then you're sort of in the Sacré-Cœur and you're near the Moulin Rouge and that becomes narrow and that becomes, and you have this absolute den of, what's the word? Iniquity? Iniquity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, den of iniquity, yeah. I've just remembered we went to that sex museum. Do you remember the sex museum next to Moulin Rouge? Oh my. I completely... Forgotten about that. We Sorry, did mum. go there. Yeah. Which is right next to Moulin Rouge, but literally six minutes around the corner, you have this absolutely beautiful, pure white domed church that is the Sacre Coeur. Yes. Right next to, and again, yeah, the bright red windmill. Yes. Where I'd forgotten, I completely forgotten about that. Now I'm thinking about, you remember those shoes that we saw in the sex museum that were, so they were like 200 years old at that point. And they were they were like um, ballerina on point shoes with the biggest spike I have ever seen. And you would, in fact, actually, best way to describe them. Do you, you remember Beyonce's green light video where all the dancers yes. are on those shoes? That was those shoes. That's right. Like, and they were like two hundred and fifty years old. Remember? And I remember yeah. looking at them like, oh my goodness. Yes, I'd completely forgotten about that. But yes, it's it's sort of that sort of I imagine the more you move up through Edinburgh because I grew up in Leith and I'm from Leith and Trinity the more you move up Edinburgh the richer it gets and then you sort of tip over the top and then you're into the old town and that but but past seems the, the more up you go the sort of dirtier and seedier it gets yeah. and then there's this massive church but yeah it's it's they are they're interesting and they're similar and that was the first time I think we'd ever been away together wasn't it yes it definitely was the first time we'd been away together and we we jumped on a train um which for me is always the epitome of luxury i Mm -hmm. love i love a train getting on a train and we were lucky enough to go first class because a friend had managed to get us some tickets for it Mm -hmm. Um, and remember alan sheeran was on the was got on at newcastle do you remember that and we decided we'd play it really cool and not talk to him because as, as, as a sports producer, yeah, 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 and you know, working in the media, we'd be letting ourselves down if we ran over. Squealed, like, like so. Instead, we, we whispered very unsatisfactorily, Oh my god, Alan Shearer's just gone. I'm sure he absolutely knew that we were uh, gossiping about him, <laughs> uh, poor thing. But yeah, no, that, that was that was such a great trip because it was the start of it was the start of my fashion career mm-hmm. and acknowledging how architecture and textiles and all of it you know human beings and relationships wind themselves around that and now after that so after that trip I then went to work in Paris twice a year 
And thank God you had taken me. I've never told you this. The last time I was in Paris, there was, you know, they, they, they just love a, a strike and a, a, a protest. Um, I was, I went on my own during one of the biggest riots and I was stuck on the train from Charles de Gaulle into the city centre on my own. For those of you who don't know Lynn very well, that's just, yeah, no. This trip when we went to France, um, we got the train from Edinburgh to London, which was lovely, all first class. And then we got off and we had to get the underground in London round to what, what was then Waterloo, it's now St Pancras, if you're going to Paris. And as we went through the turnstile, I was like to Lynn, who, FI, had the world's biggest suitcase. We were going for three days <laughs> that had a cow print on it. And we, <laughs> I turned to her and said, remember, just move quickly, keep yourself to yourself. People in London are not nice, blah, 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 blah. She kind of looked at me and went, I've never been to London before. And I was like, what? We're now in this underground with a giant suitcase <laughs> and I've got a rookie. Information I could have done with before now. And so we got on the, well, the train came. I said, you've just got to be ruthless. You've got to just get on. So I taught her too well and she got on and I did it. So off she sailed and I'm sort of waving. Vividly oh mounting, get off at the next stop thinking, because she's not got the tube map. You know, it was long, this was what, 2007, long before there would have been an app on your phone to yeah. know how to do this. And I was like, I'm going to lose her in London. Someone's going to steal that ridiculous trick. <laughs> so, but... And, you know, my I was very lucky. I did work experience in London when I was 16. And so, I mean, now mind boggles that my parents let me do that. Um, and so I had sort of got Lynn all prepped for this was going to be difficult. And then I got off at the next stop and there was this lovely man helping her with her suitcase. And I was just <laughs> like, that doesn't happen to me. Like, anyway, we did make it to Waterloo and we did make it to France and we had an amazing time in Paris. But just the thought of you alone in the middle of a strike, yeah. having to handle that. Not that you're inept, that's not what I mean, but it's just, you know. No, I like, I'm, I'm, I'm so Glaswegian that I talk to everybody. Mm. And there are certain places that you really just shouldn't do that. And I, I'm sure that this poor guy who saw me, like, waking up this giant um, suitcase just took pity on me. Which, you know, everybody's really busy in London. But actually, see, when you stop and smile at them, they stop and smile back and... And so, yeah, I'm I think you've just hit on the exact difference in our personalities because there are parts of our personalities that are very similar. You're very Glaswegian and I am very Edinburgh <laughs> and you will absolutely think the best of everybody and I am absolutely thinking the worst. <laughs> well, there's our Jekyll and Hyde. That's moment. it. That's exactly what it is. I've never realised almost 20 years of friendship and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, I'm automatically like, they're going to steal your bag. And you're like, no, they're just helping me with I'm my just, bag. He's just carrying the bag up up to the top of the stairs and it, but that was that was my first um awakening moment of London and then saying to you it's not as bad as that and you being incandescent with rage I think I just said fuck off <laughs> <laughs> fuck off yes it is you've been here 12 minutes <laughs> already had a lovely person taking my trolley up for me I, I got lost anyone listening in London is like that never happens to anyone ever how has that happened to you and your first visit within 12 minutes? I like London. It's good fun. I haven't been in so long. But so, so going back to exactly what I was talking about, that slow journey from Edinburgh all the way down the east coast of the UK, which is just 
beautiful. That like, bit between Dunbar and oh, Berwick is my favourite, where it's, it's almost like the train's on the very edge of yeah. the cliff and you can see the water is. It's incredible. You know, it, we have some of the most breathtaking scenery that we take for granted. And, you know, it's, it's totally beautiful and totally luxurious. That Again, that luxury of time, being able to go slowly, you know, having a couple of days, doing at London for a day to, to, to see the sights there and then heading off to do Paris. But when you're on, when you're on the fashion circuit, that's not something that you can do. And when you're doing London, Paris, Milan, New York, it's just at such a huge speed that again, just being able to slow down and do that for the first time with your best friend who absolutely adored Paris, you were always like, "I'll show you Paris" because New York was my thing, and I'd done New York a couple of times um, as a student, and I'd really, really loved it. So I'd, you know, I would save up all my money and I'd go to New York. We first met working together. That first job, I got that job almost immediately after graduating. Very fortunate. So that was the sort of August, September. And then in the December, I took my mum to Paris. Mm -hmm. I'd saved up and we did it on quite a tight budget because we had no money then. It'd be lovely to go and do it with a little bit more money and go and look in, in, in all the gorgeous shops because that's actually something we didn't do. Yeah. We mostly looked at art, which was is a luxury all of its own. Yeah. Um, but I'd love to go back and, and sort of experience it because I haven't been in a in a very long time. I think when I was with you is maybe the last time I went. Oh, really? I think so. Well, I wonder if you were to take a young Coco Chanel and tell her that she would be splitting her time by, you know, spending time in this freezing place up in the north of Scotland with the dizzying heights of aristocracy in Paris. I wonder whether or not she would have believed you. But for me, Paris and Chanel and Scottish textiles are something that are married together because of her, solidified because of her. And well, she would have been freezing. No wonder she's a big fan of cashmere. I mean, right. she would have been freezing in the early 20th century in a period house in the north of Scotland. She would have had all the blankets and the jumpers. No wonder she invented a twin set. Absolutely. She would need two layers of cashmere. Right. That's exactly why the twin set was invented. But it's that, it's that lovely old alliance that keeps Scotland and France together. From Coco Chanel and her love affair with Scottish textiles, leading her to Barry Knitwear, the next podcast we're going to be talking about another incredible cashmere mill, Beg & Co.